Welcome to the Grow In Podcast, where we're in company with leaders from the world's best brands and share the next chapter of their growth story. I'm your host, Sandy Khan. In the first series, we grow in innovation in company with Accenture and co-host Head of Innovation for Europe, the brilliant Lucy Cooper. Lucy and I find out what it takes to head all things digital and innovation globally at one of the world's largest and coolest drinks brands and what it means to take it to the next level. Diageo was one of those organizations that always fascinated me because it has that mix of having some incredible legacy brands. So you have brands like Johnny Walker and Guinness that are hundreds of years old. For me, it was really the curiosity to see somebody that's best in class in their industry, how do they do that? You need a certain restlessness where you want to get stuff done, but you need to take a very positive outlook. You need to see opportunities rather than challenges. You need to constantly have a mindset of getting to yes rather than no. From an innovation perspective, I think what we've seen, what really paid off was actually all the work we had done in the years before the pandemic to predict shifts. The, the big innovation areas we see as a lot of times tend to be a convergence of different technologies. And I think digital twins, for example, mirroring the physical world through digital um, is gonna be a fascinating trend. In Diageo, most people, when they talk about innovation, they talk about the stuff in the bottle. And we have some of the greatest, if not the greatest uh, liquid scientists in the world. The stuff I look at is specifically the beyond the bottle innovation. That is the global head of digital innovation at Diageo, where the spirit of innovation goes beyond the bottle. Real stories curated with love for you. Benjamin Lickford. I am really excited, Benny. It's our first series with a focus on growing in innovation. And I'm feeling blessed to have you as one of our first guests. Thank you for agreeing to be in company with Lucy and me. Now, I know you, Benny, and I know your background, which is one of the reasons why I'm feeling so happy to be sitting here with you today. I've seen you in action before. You've spoken on leadership panel events with us in the past, and we've had other senior leaders on those panels as well. And I invariably ask leaders to tell us about their professional growth story. And we never really have a lot of time to go into any depth about the background story and how they've got to where they are. Right now, the stage is all yours and we do have time. And I want to start at the beginning. Give us a glimpse of your heritage, a peek into the experiences that made you the man that you are today and a bird's eye view of your journey to Diageo. Let's kick off with heritage. What's your nationality? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm half German, half Swedish. So Swedish dad, German mom, explains my uh, slightly confusing accent at times. Um, but I was born in Germany, uh, mostly grew up in Germany and studied in, in Boston at Tufts University. And I studied international relations back then was sort of the, the big, big lofty goal of going into diplomacy and politics. And um, after a couple of internships, including at the UN in Geneva, I actually realized that's a very frustrating way, at least for me to, to make a living. 
We have two things in common, Benny. I also studied international relations and I also wanted to work at the UN. Actually, we have a third thing in common as well. Neither of us end up working in the UN. Where did your path take you after your degree? So I actually, um, after my studies in Boston finished, I had a really unique opportunity to join a startup in Sweden. So we're talking around 2004, um, where a lot of different e-com um, businesses were taking off, different business model innovation. And we started a company called Compriser that was an aggregator for um, media products. So in the beginnings, we literally did a price comparison service for books and DVDs, which uh, didn't exist in the Nordics. We then went through different iterations and pivoted um, towards doing that for financial services. So comparing uh, everything from bank loans to electricity contracts. And that's where the business really started taking off. I was heading sort of the brand and marketing side of that. And that really fascinated me how you built a community, create real consumer value um, and, and how you communicate that effectively and really build passion points and great experiences. Very much self-taught. So you can say you're a self-taught digital storyteller and a successful one at that. Your first startup was acquired. It, it didn't fail. You were just ready for a change of scenery and uh, structured growth. Talk to us about the next stepping stone in your journey to Diageo. I, I looked for a more structured environment to learn more in that field of strategic marketing and brand building. Um, so I ended up joining a company called Profit in the US. So I joined them in their New York office and Profit was uh, founded by uh, David Arker and Scott Galloway. You know, I'm sure a lot of people will know. And they were really one of the first companies that could talk to a CFO about the value of a brand in, in terms that they would understand and think really strategically around marketing efforts and portfolio management. So it was brilliant learning. I worked as a senior consultant first in the New York office, and then they transferred me to the London office. And I worked on clients, a wide range of clients from companies like JP Morgan or BlackRock and Visa to retailers like Best Buy and companies like Visa Card and others. So yeah, re really exciting journey um, and very, very analytical, very numbers driven. After a while, I, I was missing being again in the front line executing as a consultant, even though the learning is brilliant. So um, I had that urge to do something entrepreneurial again. I started another company. Startup number two. Uh, I started a company with my brother. Every management book will tell you not to do it. We started a company called Allergy Cosmos, which was an e-retailer in the UK for uh, non-medical allergy products. So things like air purification, special cleaning supplies for people or businesses that have specific needs around asthma, allergies, air pollution. Did that for a couple of years. Again, I was responsible more for the marketing and growth side of things. Um, so great business. My brother is still, uh, still running that business. Yes, Allergy Cosmos is still very much alive and kicking today. So once again, you're ready for something new and more personal growth. So what was your next stepping stone? I decided to do an MBA at that point. So I um, went to IE Business School. Um, that really fit well at that point in my career. Coming out of IE, I did a bit of innovation and growth consulting, helping different companies, especially some bigger companies up in the Nordics, companies like Tetra Pak and others with their growth strategies. Did that for a little while, and then I got the entrepreneurial bug again. Started another venture, which, which started as a passion project. Startup number three. 
So it was a company called Critical Mass that was a crowdfunded platform that uh, helped to fund great social causes, but not only by letting the crowd give money, but letting the crowd and brands um, donate their skills to different projects as well. So a social impact platform, crowdsourcing funds and professional muscle to do good. So we would support projects like a whistleblower platform where, where different journalists from around the world could put stories on it, but we wouldn't just put the financials behind it. We would have different engineers or programmers help with the actual developments, lawyers donating their times to sort of uh, help help the company with their legal needs. And um, so it was a great community and we raised, you know, over five million pounds for different charitable causes, had some great projects and worked with some brands like Amazon and Sony and Diageo actually as well. And we had uh, Sir John Haggerty on our board, the founder of BBH. Nevertheless, we, we didn't quite manage to build it as a scalable business. It was more of a, um, of a sort of corporate relations agency at the end of it, which both me and the other co-founders hadn't really signed up for. It didn't work out, but a brilliant ride and really good learnings. By now, you had co-founded three startups. The last one didn't work out, as you say, but Diageo was one of your clients there. You decide to become an entrepreneur at this point. What happened next? I then did a bit more consulting, including with Diageo. And I started really working as a, as a sort of freelance contractor and looking at how Diageo could get better at working with external disruptors, so working with startups, getting better at spotting, identifying disruptive technologies, but importantly about getting them into the business, testing them in a lean, fast way and being able to identify what are the real big wins, what are the things that are scalable. So I was lucky enough to then do that permanently, uh, build a team around that, doing that first in Europe, across all our brands, and um, now doing that globally. Never a boring day, really. I'd say it was your entrepreneurial path and stints in consulting that made you the perfect fit for the role that you perform today as an entrepreneur. Before we start talking about your role at Diageo, let me ask you if you were born to be an entrepreneur. I mean, have you always had an entrepreneurial fire burning in your belly? I think um, I think I wasn't a, a born entrepreneur in the sense that some people are. I think it's also quite telling that none of these businesses I did as a as a solo founder or as, uh, as even as the CEO, because that was actually never sort of the the role I, I saw for myself. I think for me, the driving factor was more a curiosity, the desire to solve problems creatively, to look for different perspectives, and sort of an action bias to do something where you're really involved and can drive change. So I think that for me was always more the drive rather than some people who have an entrepreneurial drive of needing to be their own boss or having their own ownership or not fitting into other structures. For me, it was more about the ability to drive change and progress. And that's something that, to a high degree, I actually still enjoy within in Diageo, my current role. I still have the ability to do that. Yet yeah, being an entrepreneur is often glamorized, isn't it? But when I speak to entrepreneurs, they are often very open and honest about the sacrifices that they've made and the sheer hard work. You mentioned the entrepreneurial bug a few times. Some might say it is an illness. Entrepreneurs feel a compulsion to build a business. And that kind of entrepreneurship definitely isn't for everyone. But everyone 
can and should be an entrepreneur and an entrepreneur to create new ideas, to make a difference and drive change. I can tell you that recruiters love an entrepreneur and an entrepreneur with consulting experience. Well, oh my God, that's a killer bonus. By now, you've worked with lean startup and scale-ups to big multinational corporations. There are pros and cons of working in both those environments. You chose Diageo versus returning to a nimble scale-up. Why? Yeah, and I think it's um, obviously different, different stages in life. And because I had seen the entrepreneurial environment, I had seen the consulting environment, um, one, I was really intrigued to look at a great corporate like Diageo and, and see it from the inside. And Diageo was one of those organizations that always fascinated me because it has that mix of having some incredible legacy brands. So you have brands like Johnny Walker and Guinness that are hundreds of years old, but you're sort of in charge in ensuring that they maintain relevant and, and innovating with them, really. So it was part of it for me. It was really the curiosity to see somebody that's best in class in their industry. How do they do that? But then I was really positively surprised when I, was, when I entered Diageo and saw it from the inside, how dynamic and fast-paced and um, even intellectually challenging it actually was. And to Diageo's credit, I think, I mean, I joined five years ago. I have, when I've been through three different roles, these roles never existed, right? They allowed me to, to grow within that, to create my own roles. It was actually very independent and entrepreneurial in that sense. Um, so I think that was a big benefit. But then also, as I described before, I think my last entrepreneurial ride was was incredibly stressful. And it was also the same time that I uh, had my first child, got married, bought a house. I was to a degree also done with just waking up every night and sort of wondering how you pay your employees uh, next month. Also, in the entrepreneurial lifestyle or entrepreneurial setup, you end up just putting out a lot of fires. While at Diageo, I actually have the liberty to really think strategically about what are the things we need to be betting on on a two or five year horizon. How do we get the resources to go after that? And while it's still, um, you know, the execution part of it, like anything when you innovate takes a lot of resilience and there's, you know, a lot of putting out fires, not to the same degree as you do in, in most startups, at least early stage setups where you just have such limited resources. It's really tough to get good talent and where the playing field around you is constantly changing. So um, I think for me in that stage of my life, Diageo was a really great proposition in terms of still continuing the learning curve, but also having a better life-work balance. Listen, it's clearly a good marriage because it's been over five years already. You have a love for the brand and a love for continuous growth in a challenging environment. You touched on the rhythm of business and diversity. Let's go a little deeper. How would you define diversity at Diageo? Diversity can take a lot of shapes and should. So um, it's not just uh, gender diversity or ethical diversity. It's really diversity of opinions of point of views, of experiences people can bring to the table. And I think that is something that within Diageo, the, the culture really enables everyone to speak up and to be heard. And um, I think it's a really widely understood concept that diversity leads to better, better outcomes, right? It makes our business perform better because the richer the, the inputs are we have, the healthier the debate is. Things get interrogated and new points of views offered, the, the more productive we are as a company. And I think that's something we really try to 
try to embrace. And, and in a way, I mean, you, if you take somebody like myself, where I didn't have a classical uh, sort of CPG background by, by any, any means, sort of people valued the fact that I brought a very different experience to the table. Diversity of talent leads to a need to identify and offer diversity in learning and growth paths. Now, companies talk a lot about the fail fast, learn faster, and having a growth mindset. And don't we love those buzzwords? What's the learning culture like at Diageo? Diageo is brilliant at teaching, for example, the marketing function the evolving sort of basics, foundation of marketing, and then looking at brand building and constantly evolving the way we think about how we build our brands, how we use media. But you also have some, some parts of the business which will be more specialist functions. And that's, for example, for my team, where we're creative technologists, um, we, we need to understand how is, you know, how is the AI shaping the way that we uh, create content or work with it or other things. So we have the resource liberty to go after that specifically. Um, and you need to find the balance. You don't want everyone in your organization to be an innovator because that would be chaos. So how do you uh, make sure you're, you're all speaking the same language, all have the foundations, but then you enable specific functions to, to really go after that, that constant learning. And in terms of career planning, I think Diageo does that really well. Like a lot of big, big CPGs as well, where you really are encouraged to jump into another function. And if you've been working in, in marketing and you want to go into sales or product innovation or supply chain, then that's something that the organization can offer you, which a lot of small companies can't. So you call yourselves creative technologists. I like that. Is there a difference in how a large company will innovate compared to a small company? I mean, you're the perfect person to ask because you've done startups, scale-ups, SMEs and multinationals. And I, I think about first jobbers and MBA students. So, you know, young talent preparing to go into the world of work or looking for the next challenge. And they'd value this question because they need to think about their fit for the job, the corporate culture and target the right brands. And when someone says to me, I want to do a function, like I want to do marketing, I think, well, you don't sound like someone who knows a lot about marketing because there are so many arms of marketing. And if they haven't gone granular on where they fit within the function, then they just won't sound convincing to me. So there must be a variety of ways to do innovation as an entrepreneur, right? Yeah, I think there's a couple of elements to it. Firstly, it's understanding what you mean by innovation yourself, right? Are you looking at incremental innovation where you'd like to optimize, to evolve something, to, to build on existing? Or are you really talking about disruptive innovation that, that's changing the world, right? That's probably a, a, one starting point. And then um, I think when you look at possible companies to work in, for me, there's one thing which is certainly the life cycle of a company. If it's really early stage, and it's early stage, something really disruptive, you know, that can be a fantastic mandate where you're really trying to sort of shape the world around you. A lot of scale-ups, on the other hand, when you're just a bit more advanced, so just in growth mode, it's actually often very little about innovation and more about professionalizing around, you know, putting the right structures in place. 
And within corporates, you will have different roles as well that look at core innovations or core product innovation or, or different types of it. So I think it's a, the company lifecycle and you want to look at what type of role it is. Is it a role that really does strategic innovation where you might be part of a strategy team and you just point out, which is closer to being an internal consultant? Or is it something like in my team where it's very much hands-on, test and learn, running experiments? I think it's lifecycle it's the type of role, and then it's a type of industry or proposition as well. There, you know, there are a lot of startups out there that really just find a very small niche, and it might be sort of an innovative proposition in the sense that nobody's covering exactly that. But it might not be what you have in mind as an MBA student to to go after go after innovation. I think these are all important, and then probably uh, adding a lifestyle lens to it as well. I think, as I said before, if you, especially if you're an entrepreneur yourself, it just comes with a 24-7, incredibly dedicated, full-on um, responsibility. But, um, you know, you can find the same thing in other industries as well. I think being an innovation always takes quite a bit of resilience to do it. And you need to be really, really driven by it, really motivated to do that. I think otherwise, it's probably not a great career choice to get into. My advice for young talent is not to worry so much about the size of the company. Focus on the job content and ensure that it fits your your passion and skills. I know not everyone knows what their passion is. To identify your passions and build skills, focus on learning stuff, loving stuff and launching stuff. Learn something new. If you really love it, then get involved with anyone or a group or a company that is working on launching and innovating in that thing. Everyone should aim to learn, love and launch one thing every year. So with that in mind, what traits will future leaders need to be successful? That's the question that I ask all leaders at our leadership panels. And the trait that you just mentioned, Benny, is often cited by other leaders, and that is resilience. Other than resilience and evidence of that, what traits do you look for in candidates for your team? What kind of stories do you like to hear? Which ones win your your love and attention? Being able to put yourself into the shoes of different consumers, of different collaborators, um, of the internal stakeholders, right? I think by the nature of it, um, especially in a corporate innovation function, you need to be a great collaborator. And uh, often you, you don't have the hard power to force anyone to innovate. You need the soft power to, to take them on the journey, to get them excited about it, to get their buy-in. So for me, that's a really key skill. And then what, what I look for, I often call it uh, the urgent optimists. You need, a, you need a certain restlessness where you want to get stuff done, but you need to take a very positive outlook. You need to see opportunities rather than challenges. You need to constantly have a mindset of getting to yes rather than no. And that's actually something that's quite tough to, to train, right? And most people, that's a very inherent sort of skill. So these would be, would be some of my key things I would be looking for. Take them on a journey, get them excited about it, get their buy-in. This is exactly what the chief innovation officer has to do at Warner Music Group. And I mentioned him because we sat here with him on an earlier podcast and he said he went on a listening tour. Now, some context. 
This is a guy who has decades of experience and wisdom. He's even built a record company from scratch. So he knows exactly what people had to do to be more successful. And he knew he couldn't just tell people what to do. He shows immense empathy, humility, emotional intelligence, what you call those soft powers to create momentum and take the people on a journey with him just by listening. I mentioned earlier that recruiters love candidates who have an entrepreneurial drive and consulting experience. So how has your previous experience in consulting helped you? I think it helped massively. So that time I talked about at Profit, where I got to work just with some brilliant strategic minds who knew how to structure a narrative, structure an argument, how to pull the right data points, how to use data and analytics to your advantage to really dig out insights and build a case. I think it's also the pressure you're under in consulting, given that the nature of it is always very deadline-driven. And you have that, so you, you learn how to be really focused. I think cut out a lot of the clutter I think the bit about empathy, you learn how to how different audiences look for different things and how they how you need to tailor your message to work with different audiences. So I think it was a brilliant learning and one that I, when I was in the startup side, profited a lot from. And that's actually quite often something I see now when startups pitch to us, where I see that that ability to, to really distill your message and really, again, put yourself in the shoes of who you're selling to and really bringing it down to their issues and problems and how your solution fits that, that's such an important skill to have. And it's something I think that consulting is very, or good consultants are very good at. I think the best salespeople are strategy consultants. And that's because they can sell without selling. And that's because they've been taught how to ask and frame smart questions. Ben, you're working in the intersection of innovation and digital technology every single day. So you're perfectly positioned to share your insights on the top tech trends and digital shifts. What are you seeing? In my role, spend quite a lot of time looking at sort of your, your Gardner hype cycles and all that. I think one thing I've learned is that like everyone else, I'm very bad at predicting, um, you know, what, what's actually going to take off and... Uh, you know, it always makes me laugh sort of if you if you look at the good old QR codes that I think, you know, were invented in the in the mid nineties by Toyota and for the last sort of twenty years everyone always been saying it's finally they're finally gonna take off and connect digital and physical and now it took a pandemic to actually um embed that user behavior. Um we see I think where the technology has really caught up, uh one of them being augmented reality, where where we do think that it's really shifting from being, especially in consumer minds, a quite gimmicky experience that just adds that extra layer to some really interesting use cases, especially in areas like training and education. And uh, that even if, if you think in our perspective, how we you know, help not only consumers, but customers to create great drinks or, or understand the drinks experience, that can play a really interesting role. And, and the more these technology like AR matures, the less barriers you have, right? You can do that web-based AR. But I think there, there are lots of these technologies there where we often take the approach of just experimenting to see when they when they come of age. And uh, I think voice is a great example too. Voice-based interfaces 
Well, we know the good technologies that stick around are the ones that solve a problem and that are really consumer friendly, right? And with something like voice, we've seen it take off in a lot of Asian countries a lot of earlier where keyboard input is so much more complicated. So there was that extra incentive. So voice is a great intuitive interface. We've done some testing where we built, you know, skills for the home environment where you could do, you know, create, ask your Alexa how you create a great cocktail in your kitchen, right? Made an awful lot of sense for us in that hands-free environment. The adaptation just wasn't there, right? We didn't know, Amazon didn't know, how do you actually drive into a skill? How do you raise awareness? There was no purchase function at the other end of how you actually close the loop. So we were a bit early in that and we said, okay, it's just, the traction is just not here yet. But, but now recently we've reviewed that, right? So um, we take a couple of bets, very lean bets of exploring this. I do think the, the big innovation areas we see as a lot of times tend to be a convergence of different technologies. And I think digital twins, for example, is a really fascinating space because essentially you obviously use those of big data, AI, a lot of things to do incredibly smart simulations. But if you look at some big challenges in areas like sustainability, I think that ability of running digital twins um, and sort of mirroring the physical world through digital um, is going to be a fascinating trend. Now, how quickly that's going to get, how sophisticated, I don't know, but that's one of those areas that really excites me. Making future tech predictions is not easy, as you said, given the speed of change. But this is exactly what you do and do so well. And I say well, because you wouldn't be where you are today if you couldn't predict, test and learn. But where do you go to stay ahead of the curve? So what are your sources of knowledge? I trust people who are a lot smarter than myself and a lot more tapped into the ecosystem. So we spend quite a lot of time to speaking to good VCs, to good accelerators, incubators, people who are really tapped into the, the startup ecosystem, uh, who know who are the great entrepreneurs, who have a great track record in the area, what are they betting on, where is the money flowing, and try to understand who's predicting what's happening there. I think that's quite a key um, part for us, as well as working closely with our partners. So that could be anything from you know, our media agency to partners like Google or Amazon or Tesco or others, and really share notes, collaborate. And for us being a global organization and me being the global function, also understanding what is happening in different parts of the world. Increasingly, we look to China to see, and if you take things like um, shoppable commerce, for example, so live stream shoppable experiences, others that in China have been happening for a while, something like QR code commerce, which is really embedded in certain parts in Asia. So even taking advantage of us having people on the ground, understanding what is shifting here, what do you see, and taking all these inputs and, and trying to make sense of it. So it's um, it's a big part of the job. And I think being in a corporate, especially important to not kind of sit in the ivory tower, but get out a lot and try to take up as much input and inspiration from these different sources and take advantage of, an, of a startup ecosystem like London. Get out of the ivory tower. I like that. It reminds me of what Scott Cohen said on an earlier podcast. Scott is the chief innovation officer at Warner Music, and he said that he never goes to the office to do business. And he also said to innovate in the music industry, he doesn't look at what's happening in the music industry. So how about you, Benny? Are there innovations in other industries that excite you and inspire you? 
Lots. I think um, we're, there are some industries we traditionally look at, like cosmetics, um, you know, companies like L'Oreal who are doing a brilliant job at um, innovating in the consumer space, companies like uh, Nike or others in fashion. And I think obviously sometimes the nature of the product, but if you look at personalization and different discovery journeys of their products, how they're thinking about their direct-to-consumer propositions, right? How they really own that experience and really think about their world a lot broader than just their core products. If you look at somebody like Nike, who really sort of enables that lifestyle that comes with the brand through everything from connected apps and, and personalized training modules to subscription models where you can get shoes for your kids and they, they will recommend the right size for different aging stages. So I think there are lots and lots of brilliant inspiration there. But to be honest, almost anywhere you look, right? I mean, we draw inspiration from everything from telcos to, to finance to agriculture. I mean, there's different uses of technology and how they evolve their enterprises. So we try to be really open-minded about that and you know, look at pretty much everything that's out there. Benjamin Lickfit, Global Head of Digital Innovation at Diageo. Thank you. We're back after this. This series of the Growing Podcast is sponsored by Accenture. Accenture is a global professional services company with leading capabilities in digital, cloud, and security. Combining unmatched experience and specialized skills across more than 40 industries, they offer strategy and consulting, interactive, technology, and operations services, all powered by the world's largest network of advanced technology and intelligent operations centers. Their 537,000 people deliver on the promise of technology and human ingenuity every day, serving clients in more than 120 countries. Accenture embraces the power of change to create value and shared success for their clients, people, shareholders, partners, and communities. In this series, we grow in innovation. So it made perfect sense for our co-host to be Accenture's EU Head of Innovation, the inspiring Lucy Cooper. Lucy Cooper leads innovation across Europe for Accenture. She believes that innovation comes from combining disruptive technologies with new business models and human ingenuity. And she's energized by working with Accenture's colleagues and clients to unlock 360 degree value so that they can win in markets and with stakeholders. Lucy focuses on challenges such as cultivating growth mindsets, scaling experimentation and developing breakthrough digital products, services, and business models. She enjoys sharing her perspective as a member of the World Economic Forum's Young Global Leaders Class of 2021. We continue to pour audio liquid gold into your ears with Lucy's innovation-driven dialogue with our storytelling leader, Benny. Before that is this. Here's my quick conversation with Lucy. On a personal level, Lucy shares her productivity tips. And in this session, she genuinely influenced me to create a few healthy habits. On a company level, 
Lucy tells you exactly how Accenture partners with clients that want to reinvent themselves and innovate in the post-pandemic digital world. And on an industry level, Lucy talks about the industries that excite her the most because they're game changers and a force for good with a focus on people, profit and planet. Lucy, you had this really great question for Benny about how Diageo had to do a pandemic-based pivot in 2020 and how innovation helped them. You're perfectly positioned to answer the same question for business in the EU. So how has the pandemic and COVID-19 affected European businesses across all sectors? We did some research all the way through the pandemic about how the European businesses were actually going to like bounce back and build back better. So we've seen like a few things. Like the first thing we've seen is much more increased collaboration and sort of more ecosystem driven solutions during the pandemic. So companies have been creative in their ability to go and reroute themselves, I suppose, in or around the pandemic. So we've seen more partnerships in cities with, you know, mobility providers, for example. We've seen, especially around the COVID care sector, things like track and trace or remote testing, or that's actually been a combination of cities, governments coming together with tech companies, coming together with life science and product companies to bring those solutions to the fore. So there's been something very interesting in Europe around collaboration. There's also been something really interesting about digital transformation. So a lot of our clients were saying like, yes, we were digitally transforming before the pandemic. And I guess COVID's been quite a big test of whether that's actually been true. Because when you've needed to move your entire methods of sales onto e-commerce, onto online, you're not selling anything through your stores, the stores are shut, or you can't accept cash overnight. Can you do that? Were you capable of doing that? And that comes down to like, how good is your digital core of your business? And it's probably been less good, I think, than most companies maybe had anticipated or expected. And so we've seen this huge, huge drive to digital and the digital innovation that's come with that. And what we call the industry X space. So all the industrial innovation and engineering has been really interesting where people have been able to, you know, have had to shut down factories and then been able to open them two weeks later with entirely new protocols, which include automation and robotics where they had less people or people who were there can be socially distanced in a way to keep them safe and healthy. So we've been seeing this kind of trend around digital transformation emerge. And then One that I think is quite unique to Europe because of the social contract that citizens have with their governments is watching people step into that social space of providing care and support, whether it's been the telco companies stepping into providing that enhanced connectivity, which I think you can all argue has been essentially like a social social good over the last 12 months, actually making sure people have been connected to their loved ones, being able to talk when they've been isolated and alone, I think is really been really important, whether it's been product companies stepping in. Tesla in America, this is an American example, we're doing free curbside pickup and drop off of certain goods and services to people to help them. The elderly space has been a real space where we've been seeing people really step into supporting those communities. And I think that's quite unique to Europe. And so I think we've seen businesses really sort of like embrace and step into that. And that kind of comes down, I think, Sandy, to like renewed purpose. The bottom line really is Businesses have had to really like just re-ask themselves what their purpose is in a world that's very vulnerable, very unpredictable, very complex right now at the moment. What are you providing to that situation that's 
going to be good, that's going to increase the value for whoever you're doing it for. And I don't mean financial value, I mean the value to that person. And so we've seen this kind of real question be asked about company purpose. And I think it's been encouraging. I think it's actually, there are these moments in the world where business strategy moves forward 10 years in 12 months. And I think this has been one of those. And I think companies are reinventing themselves. I think it's very interesting. You think about innovation and business growth every single day. So look into your crystal ball for us, Lucy, with our friend Innovation. What might the future of business look like in the next, say, five years? Ah, yeah, I mean, wow, it's like the biggest question in the entire world. Um, digitization is going to come at scale, right? So whether that's full end-to-end automation of supply chains, whether that's artificial intelligence into like stock processing and wholesale decisioning, whether it's really sorting out cybersecurity and how we're going to live in a digital world that's safe and protected. So I think the innovations that we're seeing around that is kind of really core. And then actually what we're looking at is these industry convergences, right? That's very interesting. So the innovation to me is going to happen in the collision of these industry convergence areas. So energy transition is a very good example of that. We've got to get to net zero. Energy companies themselves have got to transform themselves from highly energy intensive to at least net neutral, if not positive, which is a whole other conversation. And so we're seeing hydrogen is going to be a mainstream business in the next five years and clean power, solar, wind, water. Those have been coming for a while. And Orsted, the Nordic's energy company, turned itself from one of the most energy intensive companies in Europe to the most sustainable company in the world three years running. It's completely pivoted its whole business towards wind power and solar. So I think we're going to see more of that. And the innovations that come with that is really interesting, right? So how do you put a hydrogen fuel cell into a tugboat, into mainstream value chains or supply chains? How do you make hydrogen cargo ships? That stuff is going to require this huge amount of innovation. So there are these kind of industry convergence themes that we're looking at very carefully. Digital health is another one. That payer, provider, insurer, kind of hospital, GP ecosystem is one of the most complex in the world. But companies like Doctify and Babylon Health are going to be really important in that digital delivery of healthcare. 5G, which you can look at as an enabler, but That Industry X example I gave earlier about this manufacturing automation, 5G enables that. Edge, we're starting to see the hardware manufacturers of Lenovo and and the Dells create these very unique Edge devices. The difference between Edge and IoT is you can process their data where where the data is being pulled with Edge and you can make the decision on the Edge. And so actually you can massively increase speed of decision making. Very interesting in areas like health. So pulling x-ray data down from the cloud, being able to process the most high-risk cases. Actually, GE Healthcare are already doing a pilot on this pneumothoraxes and seeing can they prioritize the highest risk patients of who have had a collapsed lung using that edge technology, health and safety in like the oil rig environment or the power plant environment where you can make those decisions in real time and also put the, put the outcome, put the solution in place. So I think we're going to see a lot of that. And I think the reason why we're going to see a lot of that is, again, going back to COVID's changed the rules of the game for business. People are going to have to be more creative. 
and they have to understand what their purpose is in the world. And so energy transition, clean energy companies, that's going to require a complete pivot. The only other thing I think we're in the time of growth. So I think for the last 10, 15 years, apart from the hyper growth companies, hyperscalers that we we all know about, the platform partners and players in the world, most companies have been in steady, coming out of the recession, they've been in that steady incremental growth and optimization of their business. I think we're in a period of pivoting. I think we're in a period of the disruption that's come from the last 10 years is now taking hold and companies are going to have to choose what kind of company they want to be for the next 10 years. And so innovation plays a hugely important role in what are those new models for growth? How do you build those new models for growth? And that's my passion. That's what I'm super interested in is helping companies build new business models. So for me, it's incredibly exciting. But I think it's incredibly exciting for the world because I think we're going to, you know, like the Orsted example of going from energy intensive to clean energy producing, I think we're going to see tons more of those kinds of companies uh, within their industry or their industry convergence theme. And that means to me that business is going to play just a more and more valuable role in society. And I think that's exciting. You know, I've labeled you as a guru in the innovation space, Lucy, because you're thinking about it, you're talking about it, you're doing it, and you're helping others to do it with amazing teams around you. So let's talk about Accenture's impact as a business partner. What's been mm, one of your most memorable value-based partnerships that really helped a client to be future-ready? So there's a couple. I mean, there's one I'm working on right now with a big mining company to help launch and scale their hydrogen business, which is extremely exciting. And we're doing everything from um, partnering with them on their ecosystem strategy and build to um, naming the company to, um, you know, the culture and what do we want that company to be. And I love it for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, the leadership of this company within a company are young and dynamic and diverse, and they've brought leaders from tons of different industries, some very cool market-facing, like very, very cool innovative industries like space to come and sort of go on this quest and go on this vision together. So it's an absolute delight. And secondly, it just feels we're just such a team. Do you know, we don't, it doesn't feel like client and consultant. It feels like we're just doing this all together and the kinds of the kinds of conversations that we're having about how do we set an ambition? How do we communicate that ambition to the world? Is that ambition enough? Is is kind of some of the most exciting, it is actually the most exciting conversations that I have on a daily basis. Um, I think apart from that, we've just recently finished a piece of work with Unilever and one of our innovation companies, Van Berlo. And it's not my work, but I, I'm incredibly excited to talk about it in that we took through design, build, and production of reusable deodorants, right? Which sounds like a super easy thing or a super boring thing maybe because you wake up every morning and you put it on and you don't really think about it. A lot of the world, people who are lucky enough to be able to have access to and afford hygiene care every single day, you kind of put it on, you don't really think about it, but it's plastic and it's non-recyclable at the moment. We worked with Dove to build kind of capsule that you keep that is fully recyclable metals and then you have refills. We've had refills around certain things for a really long time but we've never addressed the deodorant challenge. That's something that went live this year and I think. And what are the core elements of that project that excite you? 
that's a really exciting space because it brings together innovation, sustainability, purpose, design, and consumers. And I think they'll, I hope there'll be many more of those kinds of projects to come. <laughs> Who would have thought that a deodorant bottle could be so exciting. Thanks to you and the teams of innovators that you bring together, Lucy, all of you are, you're all a force for good, <laughs> focusing on people, profit and planet. Let's talk about innovation in terms of the good, the bad and the ugly. I said you're a force for good because I know the topic of sustainability is really important to you. You've spoken about it in our previous podcast. So let's lean into that a bit more. Is there an emerging tech or innovation that excites you because of its potential to be game-changing in terms of helping people and the planet do better and be better? The energy transition innovations, they are what we need to meet the UN Sustainable Development Goals. They are what we need to keep our planet under two degrees of rising temperatures. And we can't do it without those companies that sit at the very beginning of the value chain. So it's one thing for a company to say they are going to be carbon neutral. But in order for them to do that, like if you're a clothes company or FMCG company or a car manufacturer, then all of the goods you take have been made somewhere else. The machines that go into your factories, the goods that sit on your production line, they've probably been made in a factory that's coming at the moment from non-clean energy. So you have to create the clean energy at the very beginning of the value chain to put into every value chain and production chain in the entire world so that they can have their factories run off of clean power. So they're not putting coal or gas, they're putting clean power into that factory. And that's how they get to net zero. So it's such an interesting situation because the energy companies and the power providers and the mining companies, they are the very beginning of this net zero story. So I have seen enormous innovation, determination, goodwill, and optimism from those companies. The vast majority, not all of them, like some of the American ones, you know, Exxon was in the news recently for having three people take over its board because they're saying they aren't doing enough. But the vast majority of the European companies, at least, I just see this kind of like real determination. I think what Bernard Looney at BP is doing, he's completely transforming that business. They sold their hydrocarbons business, energy intensive to energy transformative. And he's setting a vision that if he does it right, is going to far outlast his tenure as CEO. And that's brave. He's setting something up that says, if I do my job right for the next however many years, let's say 10, which would be an amazing run for a CEO, I'm setting up a business that's going to sustain for the next 100. And that courage and that vision, I think, is extraordinary. Now, the share price is still remains to be seen. It's starting to tick up, whether the confidence is there. But we need more CEOs like that. So I'm super excited about the energy innovations, getting that into mainstream power and supply and production, I think is going to be extraordinary. And that's the kind of space I'm looking at. And then the companies that can feed off of that ecosystem. I was at a conference uh, about a month ago on a panel with a guy who is SVP of a car company called Arrival in London, and they're designing this fully self-driving car that's designed for ride sharing. 
So it's actually designed this car to have people take trips together. And it's all about kind of lowering, A, the amount of cars on the road and then making sure you're putting sustainable, fully electric, fully supportive of the environment cars on the road. And they feed off these kind of ecosystems. And I think that's really exciting. As always, you connect the dots beautifully, Lucy. I hear the passion in your voice. And that company that you mentioned called Arrival, super interesting. I read that they're collaborating with Uber. They plan to, or they have, they have unveiled a prototype electronic vehicle for Uber and they plan to roll it out as a fleet of EVs, electronic vehicles. It look super minimalist. They've put lots of focus on the back of the car. So there's twice as much leg room as that of an average car of the same length, uh, more than a Rolls voice, uh, apparently. The single front passenger seat can be folded down and moved forward underneath the dashboard to further open up the interior and the back row. So it looks cool. There's nothing else that looks like it. It feels exciting because it's unique in its design and and its purpose. And it feels very much like the future of ride hailing. The whole ride hailing experience could be elevated across cities globally, making it easier, quicker, hopefully cheaper, whilst making the air that we breathe cleaner in the process. So I can understand why this stuff excites you, Lucy. But let's also cover off on the not so good stuff. So No one, no company, no community, no government can afford to be ignorant about tech advances or the lack of advanced tech to combat the scary stuff. And you'll know way more than the average person about the scary stuff. So what are the tech advancements that might scare you? So in terms of stuff that scares me, I think it's probably the same as everything else. I mean, artificial intelligence, the biases that still exist within artificial intelligence is going to be a really interesting thing that if we're going to use this technology en masse, we have to sort out. Now, the good news is is there's tons of clever people working on it. But if you're going to innovate, you're going to work at the boundaries and you're going to have trial and error and you have to push these technologies and the use cases. You know, AI being used in health and safety, AI being used in determining people's experience with, you know, lived and learned experiences with the world. That worries me. I'm not an expert in those areas, but I think we have to be really careful. And I mean, Accenture, shout out to my colleagues in Accenture who run applied intelligence, like George Marcotte, who's the Europe lead, and Paul Doherty, our chief technology officer. They have like ethics boards and things inside Accenture where they work with clients to understand the ethical implications of applied intelligence. And I think that's really great. And we're going to have more stuff like that. So I worry about applied intelligence. I worry about I worry about cybersecurity like en masse. I worry about keeping data, patient data, citizen data safe. I mean, I'm not even talking about someone trying to hack your bank account. Like it's on a much bigger level than that. I know there is lots of thought around this stuff. But I think that fine line is going to be really interesting. And if you listen to the Elon Musks of the world, you know, he says we're all going to be run by robots in the next 50 years. The the power compute that we're, or the compute power rather, that where we're up against now, quantum computing is now like around. It's on the edge. It's not core to anybody's business right now, but it can unlock 90% of banking security keys 
instantly. Wow. So if that goes into the wrong hands, you're talking about things that are really worrying. And if we are inventing this technology that's more infinitely smart than we could ever imagine, then it can potentially do more infinitely smart things than we can ever imagine right now. So I think without going and saying we're all going to be living in the minority report or, you know, the Terminator, I think how we put those technologies to good use is going to be really interesting. The other one that's a little bit closer to home, but I see it with a lot of friends who have teenage children, is the impact of social media, Sandy. And I think we need to figure this out, which is how to not leave our young adults feeling isolated, alone and disconnected from the world. And we all have to step up and as a business community and the stakeholders that sit within that and of course governments and really, really kind of deliver against that. So, Yes, and the need for that collaboration is getting ever greater, isn't it? As we embark on the... Um on the metaverse. Truly exciting and truly scary at the same time. We could do a whole series on the metaverse. It's fascinating. A customary fun question to end on, Lucy. One daily routine or productivity hack that keeps you motivated, keeps you energized, productive and feeling on track. I started meditating about a year and a half ago. So a big shout out to Sam Harris, who, if you're American and you're in the tech community, you know who he is. He's a neuroscientist turned kind of brain hacker. I don't want to say meditating master, but it feels that way. And he has this incredible app called Waking Up. He has specific meditations you can go back to. And he's got an amazing podcast where he talks to some of these incredible thinkers. And I started doing it a that in January 2020, and it's changed my life. And I never thought I'd be one of those people that sit there and say this. What does it do for you? If I don't meditate, like there are some days where, you know, I have a call that's, that's super early and I don't get out, out of bed, out of the shower, onto the Peloton and out in time to like do my meditation. I feel it for the rest of the day. And just that 10 or 20 minutes I try and do 10 during the week and I do 20 at the weekend because he has 10 and 20 minute segments to just be, be still, reflect, let go, let things pass you by, be calm, be optimistic, be grateful. All of those kinds of things have made a massive, massive difference to me because I'm not someone that's very good at doing any of those things. I get very caught up in the emotion of the moment. And so that's been probably the thing that's made the biggest difference to me in the last year and a half. And I would highly recommend Sam Harris. Okay, honestly, I haven't started, so I don't know if it's my cup of tea or not. But off the back of this, I will go Google him. He's amazing. This was, <laughs> that was pre-pandemic, right? Because you said January 2020. Pre-pandemic. So my now fiancé got me into it and was like, you need to listen to this. And like, it came just in, in the nick of time, actually. <laughs> Did... I hear you say you have a Peloton. I did. Use? So got a Peloton in in lockdown. I'm a total fitness obsessive. It's another thing where it's like, if I don't get my workout, I get a bit of stress. So, <laughs> You know, I'm exactly the same. Before the pandemic, I was like really into all my classes. I had ClassPass. I really feel for ClassPass, Sandy. It's one of those companies that's been, <laughs> I think, potentially <laughs> 
destroyed through the pandemic because all these classes have been closed. But like, you know, I have my class pass and in London, there's just so much choice. You know, I do spinning, I do boxing, I do my hit classes. And I'm a massive fan of Pilates. And there's a company in the UK called Heartcore that came over from America and they have like a very unique reform of Pilates class. Anyway, that's a whole other podcast. (laughs) Call it Fit Innovate. (laughs) And so when lockdown happened, I... We like was doing my online Pilates classes on my mat and I was like, this is just not the same. Although I did do them for the whole of the pandemic because they help with mobility a lot. And then I was like, I'm going to get on this Peloton bandwagon. And my fiance and I were like, do we really want a bike in our living room? Is it going to be this really weird thing? What are people going to think when they come over for dinner? But actually, not that anyone was coming over for dinner at that time, but actually it kind of looks cool. And it's been like a real game changer for us because now the world has opened up a bit and I do go back to my Pilates classes and I do go back to my gym. Actually, that time when you only have 45 minutes and you need to get downstairs, do a 20 minute class, have a shower, it's so accessible. The UX and UI is amazing. The quality of the teachers is incredible. And I'm we're really grateful that we kind of have it now in our house. I think it's going to go with us everywhere. But yeah, big fans. I bought Peloton stock when they IPO'd because I was such a big fan of them. So there you go. It's done very well, the stock actually. Did you? Yeah. Well, then they should be the first brand on our Fit Innovate podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Pre-pandemic, I was spinning every day. Yeah, same. There was a place in the city that I absolutely loved in the city of London. I, I am a bit of a gym junkie as well, but it's a real love-hate relationship with spinning. So I hate, hate, hate going, but love the after feeling, hate the fact that it never gets easier, but love doing something that isn't easy because it feels like a bigger achievement. So maybe I'm just a sucker for pain. I'm really liking your healthy habits of letting off steam physically through exercise and mentally through meditation and sleep. We've talked about that offline and I know that you have a really good sleeping regime. I mentioned that because Scott, Chief Innovation Officer at Warner Music, on a past panel, Scott talked about how well he does sleep and how underrated it is. I'll be Totally honest, mental workouts are missing in my life, both meditation and sleep. And I'd like to try and fix that this year. And as for investing my pennies, I mean, it should be a good habit investing. My brain is starting to wonder what the price of those Peloton shares are right now. (laughs) (laughs) Lucy Cooper, head of innovation at Accenture and smart investor in health and wealth. My words. Thank you. And here's Lucy's conversation with Benny. One of the things I ask people I talk to all the time is to define innovation because it's a word that gets thrown around. You've talked about the traits of an innovator. You've talked about some of the conditions and how a company might look at it. But tell me a little bit about how you define it. Um, innovation comes with a lot of different definitions. And then, and so does digital. And I have both of those in my title, which is often uh, rather challenging. But for me, innovation, I mean, in its simplest form, it's sort of the application of a novel and value-adding idea. So for me, innovation is not a theoretical construct. It's something that needs to be lived and executed. 
for me, innovation is something that advances, progresses, adds value in some way. And that's, that's new, right? But even with such a broad definition, it can be challenging. So one of the things we do in Diageo, we look at incremental innovation and, and more transformative innovation. And incremental innovation can often be the things that are simply new to Diageo. So that might be something that another industry is using, a technology that's quite established, but we need to bring it in-house, understand what our best use case is, optimize it, run with it. But then you have something like transformative innovation that really might be new to the world, um, or at the very least new to our industry, that might, might require us to do a lot of the heavy lifting, connect different areas or converge technologies, so we're trying with different frameworks to make sure we internally know what we're talking about when we, when we say innovation. But yeah, it's, it's a difficult one to pin down. And what would you say the balance is between the sort of more incremental innovation and some of the transformative projects that you're working on at Diageo? Within my team, we're focusing a lot on the transformative opportunities. Overall, in the organization, I think rightfully so, it would be more 80-20, if not 90-10 looking at what is the incremental innovation we need to drive to keep keep optimizing, keep growing, and then taking some very focused bets on some of the transformative areas. The pandemic's been really interesting for a lot of companies. You know, we did some research where we looked at people who led out the pandemic and people who really struggled through, you know, you mentioned the word digital. I think we saw a lot of companies have spent the last five years saying they're digitally enabled when really they haven't been, and the pandemic's <laughs> yeah. kind of proven that. For Diageo, it was a massive change. Bars shutting down, restaurants shutting down, a lot of your supply chain essentially being cut off overnight. That needs innovation in order to solve those challenges yeah. in the short term, but also probably the opportunities that it's provided you over the long term as a result of looking back on 2020. It's probably fascinating. So how did innovation help in 2020? And what are some of the things that you've look, you can look back on now as hopefully we're emerging out of this and say, actually, that's probably changed the course of business strategy for us? Like for a lot of organizations, an incredibly disruptive year uh, for us, as you said. I mean, in some markets where 60% of our business is in what we call the on-trade, so in bars and restaurants, and them shutting one day to the next in no scenario planning was that a scenario that we had in the cards, right? So um, very disruptive. And I think the, the number one way that helped us deal with that is having a culture of ownership, of employees taking accountability and, and fixing problems. So I think in the very first instant, it was just all hands on deck and seeing how do you drive the most value? How do we support our trade customers? How do we shift gears? But from an innovation perspective, I think what we've seen, what really paid off was actually all the work we had done in the years before the pandemic to predict shifts. And we obviously, we all knew that digital was accelerating. What uh, the pandemic did was just sort of added turbocharger to that and accelerated a lot faster. But so we had a lot of the, the basics in or the, the foundation in e-commerce to have great content, to have different, different e-commerce journeys that really, really help consumers to find our products online, to provide greater experiences. And a lot of these could be really accelerated. Or to give you another example, in my team, we had been testing things like QR code-based or table ordering solutions and digital menus, because that's something that we've seen in Asia and markets like Singapore, actually a lot of it due to SARS and Mars, interestingly as well, that had already been quite established. So we thought, okay, that's an interesting, what's a digital menu 
selection experience? How can you make that more personalized, more value adding? So when the pandemic hit off, that was actually one of these areas we had done a fair amount of testing. So we were able to offer that to our customers a lot quicker and support them. So um, yeah, I think that experimentation in the past and trying to look ahead and re really push our organization really paid off during, during the pandemic because we could, we could, I think, adapt to it a lot quicker. You've talked about so many important things, startup ecosystems, partnerships, getting your information from the right place. I think structure of innovation is really important. It's where most of my corporate clients go really, really wrong. They think if they bring together sort of like smart people and good ideas, then the innovation will just happen. But the reality is, is that corporate DNA is not designed to like enable innovation really to come to the top. It's designed for operational excellence. It's designed for quarterly earnings and all of the other things that we know and love about why corporates are so successful. How have you structured innovation at Diageo and why have you structured it that way? And what are some of the things you've learned? I mean, when we talk to other people, we hear a lot about the role of procurement, finance, legal, in enabling speed of innovation and how you have to structure those parts of the business to get the innovation really to be impactful. What are some of the ways you've structured that you've found to be most successful? I see it. I spend quite a lot of time just speaking to peers who have similar roles to mine and other, other big organizations. And the first thing absolutely noticed, there is definitely no one size fits all, right? It always depends on the culture and the structure. And you take an organization like Diageo that like a lot of CPGs has been over the years grown a lot through through um, acquisitions as well and having different portfolios in different regions. So a complex organization to um, navigate. And one thing to just be very clear about too, in Diageo, most people, when they talk about innovation, they talk about the stuff in the bottle. And we have some of the greatest, if not the greatest, uh, liquid scientists in the world. And if the task is to turn a Bailey's into a Bailey's Almond for people who are lactose intolerant, we have a brilliant R&D structure around that product innovation. Now, the stuff I look at is specifically the beyond the bottle innovation. And that is, I think, a lot of organizations, they're great at the core innovation when it comes to their core product. But when you're looking at everything else that in today's world, you just need to understand how these channels change. Now, during COVID, we've seen it, especially where suddenly brands had to jump into D2C without having um, you know, any of the skill sets or the structures in place. So I think what, what we realize is that in that when it comes to the beyond the bottle innovation, first of all, we, we need to be very focused and we need to be really closely linked to the priorities of the business. So what we do, for example, we, we will never, we won't define our sort of hunting grounds or what we go after based on a technology. It will always be linked to a, a consumer challenge or opportunity that's really closely linked to the business and what we want to achieve. So going after these problems. We then have within my team, a team that is very autonomous. Um, so when it comes to especially that early stage decision making, so we, we have the big hunting ground, the things we know the organization wants us to fix. We then have extreme autonomy when it comes to looking at what are possible solutions for that. How can we source them? How can we test them at speed? And luckily in Diageo, there's an innovation culture that makes it quite easy. We normally run in open doors when we try to get markets or brands to collaborate with us. But we borrowed a couple of processes and things from the startup world. I think the biggest one to call out is probably the idea of metered funding, that we don't follow the, the normal business cycles, but that we, you know, we have a budget that we can 
release when it's for small stage stuff, we have that budget, we can then scale it up. And then there is a sort of oversight committee, much like a board of a, of a startup that then would unlock the funding for the next stages when we hit certain marks. So that ensures that we are, A, have very senior sponsorship, but also that we have that independence and the ability to move at speed in the beginning um, and really are allowed to get on with it until we get to a point where we have a very well-founded, educated view on what should be scaled, how it should be scaled, what is the right model to do so. So we've got one thing that you've learned from, which I hear now a lot from my clients, which is to use kind of VC-style funding in order to get the innovation off the ground. I love that phrase, beyond the bottle. Subscribe now, and you could be selected to join us in the recording studio in London or virtually from wherever you are in the world. The opportunity to get up close and personal with our storytelling leaders and even shape the conversation is here. We're opening our doors to you. You're just one click away. I want to talk a little bit about failure because it's a word not a lot of my clients like. It's a word lots of my colleagues don't like. But, you know, there's this old age saying, you know, you can't have innovation without failure. I think there's another, I think there's another actually more important thing that drives innovation, which is a question I'm going to ask you in a minute. It's just around psychological safety. I don't talk about failure. I talk about de-risking and learning. And when I go and talk to clients, I talk about actually how innovation is a de-risking process because you don't spend $100 million on something you think is going to work. You spend a million dollars and then another million dollars and then five million dollars on evidence-based experimentation and real world doing an application of something that you think is going to be impactful. And to your funding point, you only release the next stage when you know that it's been successful or not. And if it's the or not, you decide what you do next. And so you, when you get to the hundred million investment, you've got so much more evidence and you've got such a stronger base of the decision-making process to make. How do you deal with the the big Diageo and that process? And kind of what have been some of the learnings and sort of things that you look back on and have said that's really helped you change the game in being able to bring Diageo on the journey, as you talked about earlier, the consumers, the, the larger Diageo need to come on that journey with you? Yeah, and I really like that phrase around de-risking as a good one. I'm gonna gonna borrow that. <laughs> I think you're right, and it's quite um, sort of comical how often we'll have an innovation partner agency and they, they use that uh, supposed silicon mantra valley of, of failing fast. And in, a, in an organization like Diageo, where a majority of the people spends their time trying to optimize to de-risk, right? Failure is, is never really something you wanna praise. I think it's about this the speed of learning and understanding, and that's, and to your earlier point, if, you, if you're clear on the hunting grounds or on the problems you're trying to fix for the organization, and you do very targeted experimentation to go after that, then the worst thing that happens is you, you, like, you eliminate a way of, of how it doesn't work. But you're always going to have learning in that space that you can build on to, to, to do that. And I think like a lot of organizations, there's often actually the senior leadership that really gets that 
that there needs to be experimentation in these spaces as long as it's strategically aligned with what the organization is there to do. I think often where you get the innovation barriers is sort of the mid-level, those people who hold the, the PNL and who are very worried about their quarterly results or next, next quarter results. So there then I think it's a question around how do you incentivize these people? How do you take them on the journey? How do you, um, you know, make sure that, that top down there's a culture that really enables that type of innovation? And that in the case of Diageo, I'm really happy with how you know, our global leadership team does that and really embeds that culture. And we are in an industry where you see for CPG environment a fair amount of innovation, but where it's really, really enabling that. And then it's my job or my team's job in that area to really make sure that we have very clear narratives that we share in the right way, that we make it really accessible, what it is that we're driving, that we're going after, what the results are and sharing that. And to your point, being really open about the learnings and around what doesn't work. The importance of us being really involved in that and often driving the bus rather than trying to outsource it. Because that's something I see a lot of organizations do and where they rely on agency partners, for example, to drive a bit of innovation. The problem you have, I mean, there are some brilliant agency partners who can have these long-term relationships where they're really transparent about it. Most agency partners, the idea of test and learn or admitting failure is, is, is not helpful for their business model. They're trying to sell you more work and scale it up. So for them to admit that something didn't work or be completely transparent about that, you need a, a brilliant relationship, which happens very rarely. So in the way we work with the partners and that transparency of how we process what went wrong and how we build on that, I think that's a really, really key part of really just focus on the learnings, creating learning plans, and being really transparent in the organization of, of what the objective is of doing something. And there are a lot of classic things where we've gotten better at over the years, really defining what is the outcome everyone wants. In an organization, you often have one project with five stakeholders who all have different objectives, getting everyone around and saying, this tool is supposed to do X. We define success by us beating this benchmark. If we do, it would unlock this and that, and you guys will be our partner or sponsor on the journey. So um, really trying to take some of the ambiguity out of that journey and really making it about that learning plan. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. And you you talked about when you said, you know, you just gave that example, that's really about setting the right expectations. You mentioned a couple of minutes ago that you think that the Diageo Global Leadership are really good. So I want to know why you think they're really good at enabling innovation. What do you think some of the ingredients of leadership attitude is, I guess, is my first question. And then secondly, I found, I don't know whether you found that it, it's an interesting position to be in with our roles because you end up coaching people who maybe have like 30 years more experience of running a business yeah. about how to lead in this area. So how do you do that? I spend a lot of time with CEOs and boards. I'm sure you spend a lot of time with the board of Diageo kind of going and trying and saying like, this is why we want to invest in this beyond the bottle kind of innovation. What are some of your sort of tips and tricks on, on the best way to go about that? So I guess first question is, what is some of the right attributes of attitude that you think yeah. Diageo and other leaders portray? And then secondly, how do you sort of, I suppose, do the upwards coaching? Yeah, so I think the reason why I think a lot of our leaders are good are because they, I think, fundamentally realize how quickly everything is changing around us. 
the external landscape and that they're not going to be an expert in all of this in certain areas they want to learn and they want con- want to continue to learn but they also want to enable parts of the organizations to go after it and get smarter and better at it and they're really open to having that dialogue right and i think that's really attitude i think we talked about earlier a bit about the importance of that of that empathy right and that's not just for innovators that's for leadership as well and the the humbleness and the willingness to always continue learning and where where it's a culture where i feel the door is always open if i want to put in time with you you know whoever it might be our cmo or somebody say okay i think we really need to get get smarter on x they'll be open to have that conversation and they will start the conversation with saying you know i assume i know nothing about this just give me your view of that and they're respectful of that and then give me the feedback, the context of the bigger business I need to make that assessment. So I think it's that dialogue that's really important. Um, from my side, I think it's it's being very, very focused on what I bring to these people, really distilling it down to what is the one thing that I think this will fix for us, always framing it in a consumer or business context. So again, I would never lead with saying, oh, here's this technology, there's something here. I would say, you know, we should look at that technology because my hypothesis is it can fix X for us. And this is what I know so far. This is what I want to do for us to get smarter on it. Um, so we don't do any um, startup safaris. We don't do any of these kind of things. We also don't run big PR accelerator programs. We're, we're very much focused on just fixing problems for the business. And I think that then comes with a certain credibility and we're really targeted. We don't always need to bring everyone on board. We need to bring these stakeholders on board that can really help us unlock something. So we're really targeted in that approach, not trying to waste anyone's time or just doing, you know, these broad sort of nice uplifting sessions. Because I think often we, we see just the complexity of the areas we're working in. It's not incredibly helpful to have a one hour intro by a top partner. You need to have a very targeted ask and a very, very targeted conversation. So that would be, I think, one of my top advices on just trying to manage that. From entrepreneur to entrepreneur, Benjamin Lickford, Global Head of Digital Innovation at Diageo. Thank you. This is the Grow In Podcast. Subscribe now so you're one of the first to be in company with us when the next growth story goes live. Real stories curated with love for you.